Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Good morning once more. I am grateful for the opportunity to stand before you once again and open the Word of God together with you. I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Way back there in the end of the Old Testament, you go to Psalms and Isaiah and just keep on going. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far, turn around and come back a few and and eventually you'll you'll find it there. I love the psalm that Gene read for us this morning, Psalm 22. Uh, Not only is it a psalm that David prayed when he was in distress and, and therefore very fitting for what we're going to be looking at this morning in the book of Habakkuk is the the prophet Habakkuk is asking the exact same questions that David was asking in Psalm 22. How long, O Lord, will your people suffer? How long will evildoers thrive? How long will it seem like I cry out to you and you do not answer? But those words were also placed on the lips of Jesus as he was suffering his agony on the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we see that These are difficult questions. They're questions without easy answer. And they're questions that people continue to ask. In fact, there has perhaps been no question more consistently raised in the hearts of men than the question of why evil exists. This question has often been raised as if it is the ultimate proof against a kind and loving God. And this question has taken many forms over the centuries. People have asked, why does God not prevent evil from occurring? Why does God not punish those who commit evil acts? That that seems to be the question that David's asking in Psalm 22. Why do these people thrive? Why do the evildoers encompass and encircle me? Why do I suffer when these people do not receive justice for their wickedness? Perhaps more commonly in our day, we'll hear people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And many have drawn false conclusions from this question. Some have concluded that evil in this world is perhaps evidence that God does not exist. Some have concluded that evil in the world is evidence that if God does exist, then He must not be powerful enough to stop it. Others have said that evil in the world is evidence that if God exists and He's powerful enough to stop it, then He must not be good or He must not care enough about His people because He allows it to happen when He could prevent it. And so the world has drawn all sorts of false conclusions about God from this very question. As Christians, I think we often can fumble this question ourselves and have difficulty answering it. We, we fear this very question because we are afraid that we can't give a satisfactory answer. Or if we are forced to confront it, we often will provide some trite answer along the lines of God's ways are not our ways or we don't understand God's purposes and so we can't ultimately know. But this morning as we begin our next series in the book of Habakkuk, I, I want to show you that 
The Bible is not afraid to confront this question. In fact, that is the very question that's at the heart of the book of Habakkuk. Lord, why does evil persist? Given all the evil and suffering in the world, evil experienced even by God's own people, in the midst of His own city, Jerusalem, where His temple is built. Given all that evil, can we still trust in the God of the Scriptures? In the book of Habakkuk, this prophet answers with an emphatic, yes, we can. We can trust the Lord. Even though it is the prophet himself that raises this question in the first few verses of his book. And so as we we walk through this book, we will see that Habakkuk first asks this question a couple of different times. He he brings, uh, even in your Bible it may say, complaints before the Lord. And each time the Lord answers him, the Lord issues a response to explain to him what his shocking and surprising plan to address the problem of evil that Habakkuk's complaining about actually is. Before at the end of the book, Habakkuk ultimately accepts the Lord's answers and he breaks out in a psalm of praise to the Lord for his goodness. It's going to take us about two months to work our way through this book, but I believe that by the end of that time, we will be better equipped to answer the question of why evil exists in the world and what God is actually doing about it. As well as coming to an understanding that books like Habakkuk even though they're sometimes tricky to find in our Bibles, are incredibly relevant and timely for our lives today. Even though they were written centuries, even before Christ came. In fact, I would argue, as we're going to see today, that you would be hard-pressed to find something more relevant for what's going on in our world today than the book of Habakkuk. And so then, if you are able, I would ask that you please stand together in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. There we read the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Lord, this morning we come before you humbly. And yet, if we're honest, Lord, so often we have thought the same things that Habakkuk utters in prayer before you. We marvel at the wickedness and the violence and the destruction and the strife and the injustice that we see in the world around us. And we wonder, Lord, like the prophet, what are you doing? Do you not see? Do you not hear our prayers? Lord, you invite us to be this honest with you, to be grieved at what we see happening in the world around us. 
And yet, Lord, yet we are comforted to know that you do see. You do hear our cries and you have a plan to ultimately work all things together for our good and for your glory. Lord, as we consider your word today, I pray that you would help us to see that. That you would help us to see that despite all that's going on in the world around us, you remain on your throne from everlasting. Thou art God. And we have the privilege to worship you today. The privilege to see in your word how you are addressing the problem of evil in our lives and in the world around us. I pray that we would see it. and That we would respond accordingly to it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In these verses that we just read, we see a prayer from God's prophet to God himself. This prayer addressed to the Lord from the lips of God's prophet. Now, I would wager that not many of us in here have prayed a prayer so bold recently. To go before the God of heaven and say, God, I keep praying, but you don't seem to be hearing. What is going on? Why is there wickedness and evil and violence and destruction everywhere I look? What are you doing? When's it going to get better? Habakkuk prays this prayer before God because he recognizes the pervasiveness of evil in his day. And we should be able to recognize the pervasiveness of evil in our day as well. And if we hope to provide any type of answer, any type of solution to this problem, any type of pushback to the evil in our world, against the evil in our world, we need to do the three things that Habakkuk himself does in this passage. We first need to perceive the wickedness around us. We need to then persist in faithful prayer. And we need to finally put our trust in the Lord. Those are the three things that Habakkuk is doing in this passage. And if we hope to have an answer for the problem, problem of evil as it arises in our world today, we need to be doing those same three things. So how do we do that? Let's learn here from Habakkuk. The first thing that Habakkuk does is he perceives the wickedness around him. Just as we need to perceive the wickedness around us. Habakkuk finds himself here, God's prophet, in a very difficult situation. As we study this book and as we look at the the context of what's going on, we can surmise that this prophecy is taking place between the years, sometime between the years 609 and 605 B.C. We we can date this prophecy pretty accurately to within that four-year period because we know what the social conditions were in Jerusalem at this time when Habakkuk would have been prophesying. This would have been right before the Babylonians rise to ascendancy. Right before they come and and ultimately lead Judah away captive. And that's what God ultimately is going to tell Habakkuk is going to happen in this prophecy. He says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians in. This is my answer to the problem of evil. Your complaint that you rise Habakkuk. And we'll see that next week. But that had not yet happened. But for the injustice that Habakkuk is perceiving to have taken place, this would have had to have happened after the year 609 because 
in the year 609 B.C., the last good king that Judah ever had was killed in battle, King Josiah. If you don't remember Josiah, Josiah became king when he was just eight years old. But soon he established a name for himself as a faithful and good king, a king that tried to honor the Lord through his life and what he did. He destroyed shrines to false gods. He removed idols from the land. He restored the temple. And it was during that time as Josiah was restoring the temple so appropriate and right worship of God could take place there that that they found hidden away a copy of God's law that the people hadn't seen for a very long time. And as they read it, the king understood how bad the people had strayed from God's word. And so he, he tore his clothes and he cried out to God and he repented of the sins that the people around him had committed, asking God to have mercy on them. He made it his mission to reinstitute that law in Judah and to to cause the people to live according to that law. However, when Josiah died in battle in 609, his son Jehoiakim would eventually become king. And Jehoiakim, unfortunately, was nothing like his father. The Bible records his wicked deeds and notes him as the only king of Judah, the only one descended from the line of David, who had the audacity to openly put a prophet of God to death. Furthermore, when Jeremiah, who prophesied around the same time, sent King Jehoiakim a copy of his prophecy, Jehoiakim cut it into bits and he threw it in the fire. He had no need for the word of God. He made it his mission to undo the reforms of his father. When you examine the other historical literature that we have about Jehoiakim, not recorded in the Bible, the the rabbinic literature that was recorded as history by the rabbis and was not recorded in scripture, but nonetheless comes down to us about him, you find this description of Jehoiakim. The rabbis said he was a godless tyrant committing the most atrocious sins and crimes. He lived in incestuous relations with his mother, daughter-in-law, and stepmother, and was in the habit of murdering men whose wives he then violated and whose property he seized. That's what the rabbis are saying about him. In short, Jehoiakim did what he wanted, when he wanted, and others around him evidently followed suit. So then, is it any wonder... That with this man on the throne and with these things going on in the land around him, that Habakkuk complains to God that God is making him see iniquity. We had Josiah, God, this king that that tried to lead us according to your word. And now, Lord, look at what's going on. The good and faithful king had been slain in a battle, a battle that he probably shouldn't have even been at in the first place. And now a tyrant has undone everything that he had worked to accomplish. And so as Habakkuk sees the consequences of bad leadership around him, he cannot turn a blind eye to the suffering. He sees iniquity, destruction, violence, strife, and contention. He observes that God's law is zapped of all of its power so that justice, he says, is perverted. It never goes forth. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Does that sound just a little bit like the world that we're living in today? 
Listen, we may have running water and electricity, but the hearts of men haven't changed in the past 2,628 years since this prophecy was delivered. Just this week, in our local newspaper, the Herald Leader, let me read to you some, some headlines. Again, this is just in the past seven days. Nigerian man extradited to Kentucky to face charges over scam that cost Lexington woman $200,000. Kentucky woman gets 20-year prison sentence for child porn convictions. Scam from start to finish. Kentucky man took money, but for homes he didn't deliver. Injustice. Former officer at federal prison in Lexington pleads guilty to sexual abuse. Lexington police investigate shooting of boy near Kirk Levington Park. Kentucky man charged after YouTube video appeared to catch him trying to have, we'll say, inappropriate contact with a teen. Kentucky PE teacher arrested after alleged inappropriate physical contact with student. Kentucky mother allegedly climbed on school bus and assaulted spit on driver as kids watched. It's just this past week. Iniquity, violence, strife, injustice, contention. It's all around us and this is just in our community. Our little slice of southern Bible Belt life. Right in our own backyards. If I started reading off examples of corruption, perversion of justice, violence, on a much broader scale, there wouldn't be any time left for me to tell you about Jesus. Right? It's all around us. And we need to open our eyes to see it. We need to make an honest assessment of what's going on. And as we do that, we're, we're left to ask like Habakkuk, Lord, how long? How long can this continue? How long before you rain down the justice that you've promised? We may begin to wonder, like Habakkuk, if God is even paying attention at all. Where is the God of love, the God of mercy, the God our help in ages past? But the answer is, He's here. He sees. He hears. And He is even more grieved over the sins around us that you can imagine. In fact, this is the whole reason why God sent His Son, Jesus, to the earth to remedy the violent, unjust, and perversely sinful hearts of man. In fact, when we read in the Gospels about the mission that Jesus came to accomplish, we're given this lament from Jesus Himself over Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Jesus says, O Jerusalem... Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus may have had in his very mind King Jehoiakim who killed Uriah the prophet. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. In Luke, we're actually told that when Jesus utters this lament, he weeps over Jerusalem. One of only two times in Scripture that we're told that Jesus wept. And so if you think that you hate sin, Jesus hates it all the more. He hates what it does to His people. He hates the suffering that it inflicts in our own lives, even from our own sins. 
He's grieved over it. And he was so grieved that he set aside the perfections of heaven. He set aside the glory that he shared with the Father. And he became a man like us. And came to die a wretched death. In which he endured all the just and righteous wrath of God the Father. For all of these sins and many more that will never get reported in any newspaper. All of the punishment that that you and I and everyone else who believes in Him justly deserve for our sins, He took. So that if we will but trust in Him, we will be forgiven of that sin. That is God's long-term strategy for dealing with sin and violence and wickedness in the world. To punish it in Jesus so that those who trust in Him will be redeemed or to punish it in the one who commits it for eternity in hell. Either way, there is no sin that has ever been committed from the beginning of time until now that will not go punished. There is no sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, that will go unanswered by a righteous and just God. He sees. He knows. Therefore, it is fitting for us, like Habakkuk, like Jesus, to see, to perceive the wickedness around us. And we need to look with clear eyes, wide open. And let me tell you, not just at the problems out there. Right? It's easy to read those headlines from the Herald Leader and think, well, that's down Richmond Road somewhere. It doesn't extend into the walls of this building. But let me tell you, we need to perceive our own wickedness. That's what Habakkuk is doing. right? What what Habakkuk is observing is occurring in Jerusalem. In the midst of the people of God. Habakkuk's not grieved over what the Babylonians are doing. He's grieved over what the people of God are doing. And that's why it's so shocking. Some of us are wringing our hands over what we read in the newspaper and what we see on TV at night. But we're not concerned about what happens within these walls. Recently I learned that there was once a prominent member of this church who's been dead for a few years, but he used to use a vile racist slur against a fellow baptized believer in Jesus in this very room. Probably right before he stood up to sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And the Bible says, How can you curse man with your mouth and then rise to bless God who man is made in the image of? We need to be willing, like Habakkuk, to see sin for what it is. Even when it's committed in our own midst. It's vile. Unacceptable. So that where people are made to feel unwelcomed because of their skin color or because of a disability or even because of a past moral failure that they've repented of but we can't seem to let go of. We need to be willing to perceive and acknowledge and repent of that sin. Because when we recognize sin for what it is, when we don't sweep it under the rug, 
It reminds us of the depths that God had to go to in order to remedy that problem. See, Jesus didn't have to die merely for your mistakes, for your slip-ups. He had to die for your wickedness. And we need to see it. However, as we are all too well aware, just seeing the problem isn't enough. These problems persist. They aren't ancient history. And they will persist until Christ returns. So what recourse do we have now? We have the same recourse ultimately that Habakkuk did. Persist in faithful prayer. Habakkuk is grieved by what he sees. He's troubled by how the faithful king died senselessly and he wonders why God doesn't intervene. We might expect Habakkuk then to give up on God, to turn his back on the faith, given the crushing weight of so much evil and violence. That's what many people today have done. They look around and they say, there's so much wickedness. How can I believe But it doesn't drive Habakkuk away from God. It actually drives him toward God. It causes him to plead his cause to God all the more. Notice that when we pick up reading, Habakkuk has already been praying to God for a long time. His question, how long shall I cry for help, implies that he's already been crying for help for a long time. Before these words ever come to us. And God has seemingly remained silent. Yet the prophet here is not deterred. He continues day after day after day to lift up his cries for help. See, often we think that if we pray once for something, that we've checked it off of our to-do list. But that isn't the pattern of prayer in Scripture. James 5.16 tells us, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or more poetically in the King James Version, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Or like in Luke 18.1, we're told this, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. How many of you have lost heart in your praying? How many of you have already given up Yes, you used to pray that your child would repent and trust the Lord, but it didn't seem like it was happening, and so you haven't prayed that prayer in a long time. You used to pray for our city, but now you don't much see the point. One of my great heroes of the faith is Adoniram Judson. So we talk about mission work today in Southeast Asia. Adoniram Judson was the first American Baptist missionary, and he went to Burma, now Myanmar, where he spent his life laboring to gain a gospel foothold. And he and his wife spent the first six years in the country laboring in loneliness and difficulty before they saw the very first convert. Six years before one person trusted the Lord. In that time, they had a precious child and then lost him just eight months later sickness. And amid all the grief and disappointment, Adoniram continued laboring faithfully to preach the gospel and to translate the Bible so the people would have a Bible to read. You may think that with all that going on that Adoniram didn't have much time to pray that he, or that he became lax in his prayer life. 
after the grief of losing a son and the disappointment of not seeing a convert. But this is what Adoniram wrote about his prayer life and what he encouraged others to do as well. He said, Arrange thy affairs, if possible, so that thou canst leisurely devote two or three hours every day, not merely to devotional exercises, but to the very act of secret prayer and communion with God. Endeavor seven times a day to withdraw from busyness and company and lift up thy soul to God in private retirement. Begin the day by rising after midnight and devoting some time amid the silence and darkness of the night to this sacred work. Let the hour of opening dawn find thee at the same work. Let the hours of nine, twelve, six, three, and nine at night witness the same. Be resolute in this course. Make all practicable sacrifices to maintain it. Consider that thy time is short and that business and company must not be allowed to rob thee of thy God. At least remember the morning, noon, and night seasons and the season after midnight, if not detrimental to thy health. I love these because Adoniram says, you know, at least do these three prayer sessions a day and also the one after midnight. You know, and he says, remember, your time is short. Most of us remember that our time is short. There's busyness in our lives, so we don't have time to pray. And Aram says, no, it should be the other way around. Remember, your time is short, so therefore make it all the more a, a priority to spend time in prayer to God. If Adoniram spent two to three hours in prayer every day for six years, it means that Adoniram prayed at least 5,500 hours in those six years before he saw one convert. What have you prayed for for 5,500 hours? Have you prayed for the souls of your children, of your spouse, of your loved ones? You may think, well, I don't have much to offer the church. Pete, there's not a lot of really wealthy people in here. You know, we may not be able to support one or more missionaries, but you can pray. You can pray. Your these hours that you can spend communing with God don't cost you a dime. Habakkuk was persistent in faithful prayer. How much could be different? How might our church grow and thrive? How many of those 3.2 billion people might hear the gospel for the first time and the second time as it took that woman? If we would commit to praying that it would happen. If we would simply persist in prayer. But perhaps the reason that we don't persist in prayer brings us to our final point. We must put our trust in the Lord. For all the wickedness that Habakkuk saw, for all the questions that it raised in his mind, he never lost confidence that the Lord was the only one that he could go to. He never ceased to believe that God alone had all the answers he needed. And that's why he persisted in prayer. The two go hand in hand. If we put our trust in the Lord, we will persist in prayer. And we're not going to persist in prayer if we're not trusting that the Lord will be able to do something about it. Perhaps it's the case that we don't persist in prayer because we have lost confidence in the Lord. Our faith doesn't burn as surely as it once did. But we must remember who it is that we are praying to. The God 
our help in ages past. Habakkuk remembered. And so the death of his king did not shake Habakkuk's confidence in the Lord. The rising to power of a corrupt tyrant did not shake Habakkuk's confidence in the Lord. And yet we face a little bit of hardship and we get shaken to the core. We face a virus, a little political opposition. We see wars on our televisions. We get a notice that our property tax has gone up. It suddenly costs us $100 to fill up our cars at the gas station. And we get all out of sorts about these things. In each of these situations, we need to remember our Lord and continue to trust in Him. Trusting the Lord doesn't mean that we no longer see the problems around us or that we aren't disturbed by them. We aren't troubled by what we see as injustice and sin in the world. In fact, trusting the Lord helps us to see that even more clearly. But we don't get unsettled by it because our trust is on a more sure foundation than the circumstances around us. Than in the value of our home or the price of a gallon of gas. Our confidence is on the eternal, unchanging person of God who has been faithful for endless ages before and will continue to be faithful throughout all the rest of eternity. The Lord has a plan. And we will see in the coming weeks what the Lord tells Habakkuk specifically that he's going to do to address and remedy the problems that Habakkuk is raising. It was a shocking plan, as we'll see. But it was a good plan. In the same way today, we can be confident that the Lord will not let the wicked go unpunished. He will not let injustice go unanswered. There will not be one sin that He overlooks or sweeps under the rug. One dollar that you're cheated out of. One careless word spoken in racist bigotry against a beloved son or daughter. There won't be one thing that God sweeps under the rug that He doesn't punish. It will either be in Christ Jesus or in hell. The Lord's ultimate answer to the problem of evil is to send His only begotten Son to die in our place for our sins and wickedness. That too is a shocking but also very good plan. The problem is we often prefer our own solutions. We have our own ideas about how justice should be done, how the evildoer should be dealt with. But God says He will put things right. Often we think, well God, why don't you just take all the wicked people out of the world? I don't think you want that. Right? Because what does the Bible say about us? That our hearts are wicked. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. There wouldn't be anybody left if God just simply removed all the wicked people from the world. Instead, what He is going to do is He's going to make the wicked people righteous. He's going to forgive them of their sins through the sacrificial death of His Son and He's going to make them righteous by sending His Son to die for those same wicked people. It's a scandalous plan. But it's one that we all have the privilege of benefiting from. If you haven't yet been made righteous by Christ, then I'm sorry to tell you that you remain 
wicked. Even if you manage to keep your name out of the newspapers, good for you. But there is coming a day when every sin will be found out. When there will be a price to pay. I urge you, therefore, to repent of your sins and call out to Jesus to save you today. And He will. And then until He returns, perceive the wickedness around you with eyes wide open, not so that you can wallow in despair, but so that you can persist in faithful prayer, putting your trust in the Lord. We'll continue to learn these lessons throughout the book of Habakkuk, but I would encourage you to begin putting them into practice this week. And today, if God has opened your eyes, perhaps for the very first time, to perceive the sin in your own life so that you realize, Lord, I'm wicked. And I need to be made righteous. Then I would invite you in just a few minutes as we have a song to come and and talk to me and I will be happy to tell you God's plan for erasing your debt and making you righteous. Perhaps you have had your eyes open today. You've already trusted the Lord, but perhaps He's helped you to perceive sin in your own life that you've been aware of, uh, unaware of. I would invite you to come and repent of that sin. Find the forgiveness that God has already purchased for you through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that together, we as a body of believers might present a viable solution to the problem of evil that we see in the world. That we might present hope and life and restoration and forgiveness as a picture of what God is working to accomplish in the whole world right here at Boone's Creek. Let's pray. God, this morning we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the difficult questions that it raises. Lord, I I would imagine that most people in here have wondered at one time or another why evil is so rampant. Lord, we trust that in coming weeks we will see how You deal with evil, how You deal with wickedness, Your response to this problem. But as we start to unravel this, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to perceive wickedness around us, that you would draw our hearts to persist in faithful prayer. All the while as we are continuing to put our trust in you. And Lord, today, if there is someone who has not yet put their trust in you, I pray that they would do so today for the very first time so that you might make them into a new creation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.